What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week, we welcome back to the podcast, Robert Lipsight. We are discussing his memoir, An Accidental Sports Writer, which has just come out in paperback from Echo Books. For more than four decades, Bob Lipsight has been a respected, award-winning figure in American sports journalism. He has also been a controversial figure. As Bob explains in his memoir and in our interview, he was a sports writer who didn't like sports. He didn't revere the heroes or epic tales of American sports, and he viewed the whole spectacle with a detached, wry perspective the view of a former fat kid who had steered clear of bully jocks, and an English major who had grown up going to the library rather than the ballpark. He admits that this approach got him into trouble, but it also led him to offer sharp and important critiques of sports in American society. Throughout his career, and still today, he is less interested in the games themselves Then he is in the cultural and social insights that the games and their players reveal. What he finds is not always what sports fans want to hear. As he says in the interview, readers either find him a jerk or a genius. Yet for all his sharp analysis and opinion, Bob is also a master at telling a great story. And his life does make for a great story. His memoir was a lot of fun to read, as he described his encounters with a who's who of characters, both within and outside of the world of sports. He writes in a way that is matter-of-fact, but with just the right dash of commentary to highlight the hilarious and sometimes the absurd. I read several passages of the book out loud to my wife so that I could share a laugh, and I asked Bob to start the interview by reading to us setting the stage for how he became an accidental sports writer. I lined up a summer job in 1957 as helper on a city water truck that would cruise Manhattan, filling troughs for the dwindling number of working horses in the city. I had just graduated from Columbia and was headed to Claremont College in California, which was as far from the borough of Queens as I could imagine myself. I had even sent a dorm deposit. Once out there, I would fulfill my destiny as a novelist, either starving on the beach, because my fiction was too avant-garde, or luxuriating by the side of my pool, because I had sold out. Both scenarios involved dangerous women. I was an English major. That's Robert Lipsight reading the opening paragraph of his memoir, An Accidental Sports Writer. Bob, welcome back to New Books and Sports. Glad to be here. So an appropriate place to start is where that that paragraph leaves off. You didn't fulfill your destiny as a novelist, at least not in 1957. Instead, you became a sports writer. 
by accident. So can you tell us how that happened? Well, um, I figured out that I probably needed some more money that summer. The, uh, it, was, uh, it was a rainy summer, and they didn't need the trucks. And I also think the program uh, was not funded. They kind of let the horses go. Uh, so I bought a copy of the New York Times. It may well have been my first. I heard they had good classified ads in those days. And there was an ad for editorial assistant at the New York Times. So I, I went down to Times Square, showed up. They, they, were, they were kind of patronizing. Bachelor of Arts degrees, English majors were a dime a dozen. Uh, they were really looking, they told me, for all the Fulbright scholars and Rhodes scholars and Ph.D. candidates were lining up for these editorial assistant jobs, which put you in close touch with, sounded like the Knights of the Roundtable, with the editors and reporters of the New York Times. Uh, but they told me to fill out an application. Who knows, maybe in a couple of months, something would open up you know the the oxford dons would you know call the road scholars back or something and i almost didn't do it in a couple of months i would be in, in claremont but uh doing something really interesting like uh romantic english poetry but uh i was a polite boy in those days i filled it out went to times square went to uh, a, a cowboy double feature and then went home to queens and my mother was on the, at the stove, and when I walked in, she said, Bobby, you got a crank call. A man said that if you showed up tomorrow afternoon and passed the physical, you could start tomorrow night at the New York Times. And um, the physical turned out to be showing up tomorrow afternoon. And that next night, I started as a copy boy in the sports department of the New York Times, a, a job that... I immediately hated, didn't like the guys, the kind of cranky overnight copy readers. Uh, the hours were 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. The work was sharpening pencils, uh, filling up paste pots for the copy editors, and when they yelled, boy, copy, running to their desk and grabbing the paper and uh, sending it up to the uh, composing room to be set into what in those days was hot type. So how long then before you were actually able to start writing? Well, there were little things that you could do around the paper. On Sundays at $5 a piece, you could cover sermons. Uh, and um, you could also go on Saturdays for uh, Jewish services, which I didn't like as much because uh, particularly in Orthodox services, you were not allowed to take notes on the, uh, the rabbi's sermon. I would have to do it surreptitiously, you know, under the shawl. But Sundays were great because uh, particularly in the big Protestant churches, the, um, the, the ministers not only had advanced copies of their sermons, but they were very happy to invite you know, this 19-year-old kid, but, you know, a reporter for the New York Times, back into uh, the quarters uh, for a, uh, a glass of scotch and a discussion on the metaphysics of their sermon. So that was kind of fun. And then, then you went to the office and you typed up 150 words uh, about the sermon and got, got your five bucks. So that was the start of getting in the paper. And then there were other little feature stories you could do here and there. But uh, it, was, uh, it was almost a year and a half of being a copy boy and then some time of being a statistician doing the box scores and the standings uh, before I became a reporter. But I was a reporter uh, at 21, which was kind of lucky and early. And uh, then things started to become more accidental and more fun. Okay. Well, before we get into that, I want to ask about that last sentence of the passage you read. There's, there's a lot of weight in the statement, I was an English major, and I can say this as someone who's married to an English major. So, so how has being an English major, a student of literature, shaped your view of sports? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I don't really know. Uh, I think what has really shaped my view of sports was the fact that 
uh, I was not a sports fan. My my parents were public school teachers. My my dad was by no means a sports fan. Uh, we didn't talk about sports at home. Uh, we didn't go to the ballpark together. Uh, he would take me and later my my younger sister to the library once a week. That was that was our ballpark. Um, we talk about books. I, I I think to a certain extent this was growing up in the fifties. Um, a kid in the outer boroughs of New York had to at least pay lip service to sports, to sports fandom. Otherwise, you know, you're a fag. So in those days in New York, there were the three baseball teams. And so, you know, you would get into some sort of, you know, mild, friendly argument, the Yankees versus the Giants versus the Dodgers. And, and you know, as long as, you know, you showed some sort of vague interest, uh, you could kind of slide along. I was not interested. I mean, I listened. I listened to Yankee games and on on radio because you know how to keep up with current events. But the the point really was that by the time I actually was sent out to cover a baseball game, that was the third game I had ever seen in my life. The first two I had seen when I was you know, twelve or thirteen with with other other kids' fathers. So what that meant was that I did not bring in the emotional baggage that a sports fan would bring in to coverage. I really came in purely uh, as, um, as a disinterested journalist. On the other hand, I think the weakness was that I also didn't bring in the, uh, the vast background uh, of folklore, statistics, um, understanding of games that uh, the average kid growing up in Queens would have brought to that job. I mean, all my all my friends from Queens, you know, were amazed and amused that I be, I became the sports writer. So you didn't come in with the with the reverence for all the myths surrounding surrounding. I didn't know, I, I, I Bruce, I didn't know the myths. Yeah. And uh, I had no reverence for them. Um, I guess to a certain extent, maybe that was that was good because I, you know, I approached it kind of coldly. I would like to think clearly. I don't know, but on the other hand, early on, for sure, uh, I made a lot of mistakes. I didn't really know who people were, who the peck order was. You know, I remember once uh, being very self-righteous at the way. Uh, a minor official of the Mets had totally dismissed some kid who was trying out for the Mets. You know, he had nothing. Um, you know, he would never amount to anything. And I, I remember, you know, getting on my horse and, you know, how, how, who are you to, you know, make a decision like that? Well, he had been a star relief pitcher for the New York Yankees in his time. And I think that I probably made a lot of stupid and humiliating mistakes like that along the way. Um, I think the, the rap on me always was not without justification that I, I could write, but I really didn't know what I was writing about. <laughs> All right. Well, well, sticking with your your background before you were before you were a sports writer, before you were an English major, uh, you came from this this house of bookworms, as you said, and and you were also the fat kid. And yes. Uh, and something that in reading your book, as, as a former fat kid myself, I, I was struck in how, how that really shapes our, our view of the world. So how, how did being the fat kid shape your, your view of the world? Well, not, not to romanticize it, but I think that I still feel fat, mm -hmm. and I'm not. I still feel fat and alienated and, you know, a wallflower at the orgy. Uh, somebody you know pressed uh, against the wall while everybody else is cavorting and having fun. I, I think that I began to write as a way of shaping and controlling my world. Uh, I, I do remember that in in the early short stories, and I, I, I really think that I became a serious writer somewhere around third or fourth grade. I do know that in somewhere around fifth grade, I sent a novel to Simon and Schuster. Uh, it was called the The Return of the Lone Star Ranger. 
Um, it was it was written it was handwritten uh, on torn out lined school paper, and I, it was you know ran at least fifteen pages. Um, we had a neighbor who worked at at Simon and Schuster, so I sent it to her, and got kind of a wonderful note back from the editor of of Simon and Schuster at that time, uh, saying how much he had enjoyed it, uh, and that when I was uh, older and uh, wrote a a larger typed version of Return of the Lone Star Ranger, he would be very happy to um, to look at it for publication. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's all I needed for the next 20, 30 years. Um, but uh, so, so being fat really did, did shape. And as I said, in, in those early stories, uh, thin kids generally died horribly at the end. Um, <laughs> and uh, I wrote a lot of science fiction because, you know, you know when, when you've never done anything, what else do you know except alien planets? Um, and uh, and then I got started getting getting published and uh, in, in school publications and you know little mimeograph magazines and things and and girls would come up and want to talk to me about my stories as surely uh, as they went up to the jocks and asked about their home runs and so I realized early that for you know a, a guy like me. It would be uh, writing stardom that would get me chicks. Uh, and then when I was around 14, I lost my weight. And I, I also realized at that time that there was nothing in the world that I enjoyed more than writing. And 60 years later, it's still true. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to your, your early days at the Times. And you were, you were working on in the copy room on the night rewrite desk. And in 1960... Uh, you had one of your first assignments. You were sent out to Yankee Stadium to interview one of the stars of the team, and, and you had an experience that uh, certainly wasn't a pleasant, pleasant experience. And, and I think, yeah, I, I think Bruce, I, I, I think I tend to make too much of it. It certainly affected me at the time, but um, I, I, I keep hearing this little voice saying, you know, Bobby, get over it. Um, what had happened in 1960, uh, which was very aberrational for the time, shocking, a fan jumped out of Yankee Stadium, ran across center field, and punched Mickey Mantle in the jaw, the American icon, the golden boy. Um, so 1960, he was in his uh, late 20s at the time, already a hero, although he had never quite fulfilled you know his promise, but but a hero, and the Yankees went off on a road trip soon after that. Mantle was uh, seen sipping his lunches through a straw. He obviously had a, a very sore jaw, but then you know he was sipping a lot of lunches and dinners in those days, <laughs> and also in those days, sports writers, particularly New York Times sports writers, did not really interview ball players. Really asked them tough questions, and so nobody had really asked Mickey Mantle what had happened and how his jaw felt. The Yankees now come back from their road trip, and the editor of the paper, not the sports editor, the editor of the paper, um, said, "Hey, I think we need a follow-up story." And the sports editor, being wise and realizing that he didn't want to risk. One of his real reporters, you know, sent the kid from Night Rewrite off to Yankee Stadium to find out what had happened. And um, I went off to Yankee Stadium. In those days, uh, we went to the ballpark wearing a suit and tie. I may well have been wearing a vest. And just before the game began, uh, Mantle is playing catch in front of the dugout with Yogi Berra. And I, I can't imagine I could have been more polite or more obsequious and asked Mr. Mantle uh, what had happened the previous week when the fan ran out. And and he just kind of turned in the most casual way, and he made a rude and impossible suggestion. Um, and this is, a, this is a family-friendly podcast, so we'll leave it at that, the old familiar yeah. suggestion, yes. Yeah, I mean, historians in your audience uh, 
would would remember it was what Vice President Cheney said some years ago to Senator Leahy. And I was shocked. Um, I was 22. I'd heard such language before, but not from an American icon, not from somebody that I really knew only from, you know, my, my cursory reading of the sports pages. You know, this was Mickey Mantle's golden youth morning in America. Um, I, I immediately figured that I, I must have approached him the wrong way or asked the question poorly. It was my bad, my, my, my inferior technique. So I, I rephrased the question. He signaled Yogi Berra, and they started throwing the ball right over my head. At the time, I was scared. Later, I was amazed at their ball control. Uh, but in any case, I realized that the interview was over. I, I felt I felt humiliated. You know, I really seriously thought, you know, should I be doing this stuff? Uh, I don't know how to do it. And it really was some time before I asked a, a, a more seasoned reporter. Um, I was looking for tips, uh, and, and I told him the story. And he just said, oh, yeah, that, that's Mickey. Mickey's nasty. Mickey's a red ass. Uh, you should see Mickey spit at kids when they want his autograph. And I said, What? I've never read that. You, you guys never wrote that. And he said, well, yeah, you know, editors, editors don't want that. Fans don't want to read that. And, and, and you know, it might, might close off access in the locker room. So we don't write about that. Um, and it was a very important moment for me in my career. It was kind of really consciousness raising. Uh, first of all, I was angry about having felt bad. I mean, in, in, in years later, in retrospect, not at the time, of course, but, you know, by 70s, by the women's movement, I began to think that what had happened was probably analogous to how, how women feel when they're told that they brought the sexual harassment on themselves, you know. You know, you shouldn't have been wearing those clothes. You, you know, shouldn't have been wearing makeup that day. So it was your fault. So that was, you know, I thought it was my fault. Then realizing that uh, who I should really be angry at is uh, is fellow sports writers uh, who are doing such a lousy job on reporting on these so-called role models on on our heroes. Uh, so I, I really stewed about that for a very long time. I think it really shaped uh, a lot of my uh, sports consciousness and and my coverage. Although I, I must. To add to that, I mean, there is a, a coda, because ballplayers always told me, you know, how great Mickey Mantle was, you know, how much fun he was in the locker room, his wonderful sly wit. So now it's, um, you know, 26 years later, 1986, I'm a correspondent for a show called Sunday Morning, CBS Sunday Morning with Charles Kroll, and they, they sent me to do a piece on Mickey Mantle. Two camera shoot, uh, big deal, 12 minute essay. Uh, by this time, Mantle is um, you know, not only is he not playing, but he's out of baseball because he, you know, he couldn't get a job in baseball. And he had taken a job as a kind of a, a greeter for an Atlantic City casino. And baseball had decided that he didn't want anybody involved in the game who had any kind of connections with gambling. So his job was basically to um, pal around with high rollers and important CEOs. And on this particular day, he was uh, going around a golf course in what we call joker stroke golf. You know, he was playing with a bunch of CEOs, and there were drinking and laughing and he was telling stories and entertaining them and at the end of the day uh in the afternoon mantle by now is uh is is well lubricated and we set up in uh, a quiet abandoned bar of the country club two cameras one on each of us and uh you know we kind of talk about mantle's life it's a terrible interview i think that i'm 
I'm kind of crabby and, and resentful to a certain extent of having to, you know, deal with this guy. Uh, he was he was bored and stiff, and he, you know, he wanted to drink some more and go home. And um, after after we shot about ten or fifteen minutes, I decided to hell with this. You know, I, I'm I'm too old now to care about this stuff. And I said, you know, Mickey. I've really disliked you intensely for a long time. <laughs> uh, or, or actually, uh, I, I, I said that in a less family-friendly way, <laughs> and I, I really got his attention. And um, and then I told him the story uh, about that day in in Yankee Stadium and how meaningful it had been to me. The mantle looked at me for a long time, took a drink. He was breaking through the interview and said, yeah, Bob, I remember that really well. It's bothered me all these years, and it's probably the reason I became a drunk. And, you know, at that moment, I, I liked him, and I suddenly understood Mickey Mantle, or at least I understood uh, the, the, the charm of him and the dry, sly country wit of him and why guys in the locker room, I mean, this was just such jock humor. Uh, the guys in the locker room really responded to him. And um, I said, yeah, cool. I said, can we start this interview all over again? And we did. And it was a fabulous interview. He was relaxed and funny. He even told me his Freudian dreams and um, I, I kind of, I kind of got a, a closure to my uh, to, to my youthful Mickey Mantle episode. So your first big story, capital B, capital S, as a, as a sports writer, came in 1964. And once again, this was still when you were on the lower rungs at the Times, and you were sent off on what was thought to be really a pointless assignment. So can you tell us how you ended up with, with the story of Cassius Clay? Yeah, in 1964, I was 26, and um, I I had just replaced uh, Gay Talese, who was my mentor in the sports department, as, as their kind of basic feature writer. In, in 62, I had covered the Mets, first spring training, and I, I was kind of the, the guy that you sent out on um, you know cute little feature stories, um, nothing too heavy, nothing too important, uh, but uh, he'll always come back with a light, amusing piece. That was Gay's job at the Times uh, before he he went on to become the the prince of the new journalism. So, in 1964, uh, one Cassius Clay challenged Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship of the world. Cassius had beaten nobody of any importance. He was 22. Uh, his only real accomplishment was getting himself on the cover of Time magazine when, when that meant something. Uh, basically because he was so outrageous and pretty and funny and um, you know, came up with doggerel that he read in coffee houses. And it was generally assumed that um, he was going to be sacrificed to this Grendel's mother, this unbeatable monster, the heavyweight champion Sonny Liston, because boxing really needed uh, a box office payday. There was no really interesting fighters out there. The ones who might give Sonny a little bit of a fight uh, were boring. It was assumed that that Sonny would win anyway, and that uh, Sonny would destroy Cassius Clay uh, in a round or so. In fact, the odds were seven to one, which are prohibitive uh, in sports, and it it really didn't seem worth the time of a real big reporter, the boxing writer. In those days, boxing was a very important beat, and so they thought that they would send this lightweight feature writer who also spent a lot of time on night rewrite. So I was sent down and my instructions were, as soon as I got to Miami Beach, in my rental car, drive back and forth a couple of times between the arena where the fight was being held and the nearest hospital, so that I would waste no deadline time following Cassius Clay into intensive care. 
And I did this. And then I drove to the old Fifth Street gym, uh, which is was in a really uh, squalid part of uh, Miami Beach in those days. It's now, of course, South Beach. Uh, I went to the gym and uh, to meet Cassius Clay for the first time, watch him train. And as I went up these rickety steps, I noticed that there were these four little guys around my age coming up behind me. They were, um, they had kind of messy hair and they were all wearing white terry cloth cabana jackets. And um, when I got up to the top, I, I asked the guy in charge, the PR guy, who they were. I introduced myself and who they were. And he, he was kind of not sure. He said um, that they were a British band that was in, in America on tour. They had been up to Sonny Liston's camp for a photo op. But Sonny had taken one look at them and said, I ain't posing with them sissies. And so it, the photographer had stuffed them back in the limo and were taking uh, them down to Cassius Clay for a photo op. And the PR guy said that, um, that Cassius Clay's people, the promotion, really wanted uh, the photo because ticket sales were not going well. And then the do anything for publicity so uh but that Cassius had not yet arrived and and when these four guys heard that well, they started cursing and they turned around and and started to go down the stairs but the security guards just really shoved them <laughs> just shoved them right up the stairs uh behind me and i let myself get swept along with them into a, a dressing room uh i figured i'd get a couple of quotes or something and uh, we were all locked in and they were cursing and stamping and banging on the door they were very angry uh, at being trapped like this and I introduced myself hello I'm Robert Lipside of the New York Times I'm sure again wearing tie and jacket and um, as I figured out later uh, John said hi I'm Ringo and Ringo introduced me to George as Paul and I asked them uh, for their prediction of the fight, and they said, "Listen, he's going to kill the little wanker," and uh, he's terribly overhyped. And then they were banging on the walls and screaming and yelling and just generally carrying on. So suddenly, the door bursts open, and there, filling the doorway, uh, is is the most gorgeous creature any of us had ever seen. We, I, I think, we all gasped together. Um, Cassius Clay, you know, six three, two hundred pounds. He looked smaller in photographs because he was so perfectly proportioned, and he glowed. He's just so handsome, and he was laughing, and he he roared, "Farmy Beatles, we'll go make some money," and and he turned around, and you know, if I, if I had known that they had never met before. Uh, I, I would have sworn they, they choreographed the scene. It was like kindergarten kids following Cassius out into the gym and then into the ring. They climbed through the ropes. And then in this, in this marvelous routine, which can be seen to this day on YouTube, it is a classic photo op, just, just writing Cassius Clay and the Beatles, um, they all lined up. He... Uh, pretended to hit the first one. They all went down like dominoes. They jumped up. They formed a pyramid to, to get to his jaw. Um, they kind of capered and danced around. Um, and then, after uh, five, ten minutes of this, it was over. Everybody had gotten their photographs, and the Beatles went off to their destiny. And um, Cassius Clay worked out. And then, you know, after he finished working out, he went back to that, that dressing room uh, to get his, his rub down. And he, he was laying on, on the uh, dressing room uh, uh, massage table, and reporters had all kind of pushed in to interview him. It was my first real close-up with Cassius Clay. And he, he noticed me, and he kind of beckoned me over. He said that he had seen me in the 
dressing room and he put his mouth right against my ear and he said, so who were those little sissies? <laughs> so to me, uh, it was like, I think it was like February 18th, 1964. To me, that was the moment when the 60s began, uh, when, when Cassius Clay met the Beatles. And then, of course, uh, we had a wonderful, riotous week in um, Miami Beach, where most of the older reporters clustered around Sonny Liston. Joe Lewis had come to be with Sonny Liston. That, that was kind of the center. And, and the younger reporters, of which there were not that many, uh, hung out with uh, Cassius Clay, who was great fun. And then in the, uh, the career move, of which I am endlessly appreciative, Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston um, I became the boxing writer um, for the next year or two. Covering boxing really meant covering Muhammad Ali, uh, and that led to all sorts of good things. Mm -hmm. So you another open... another accident along the way. Yeah, yeah. So you openly admit in the book that uh, your career ascent was uh, really connected with with Ali's, and and something that's interesting is that. Uh, uh, and I'll ask you, how would you describe your relationship with Ali over the years? Because you describe these scenes where you were just kind of just kind of hanging out. Well, I mean, I must say I have enormous affection for him. I don't. I don't always like him. I certainly probably love him in some way. Uh, I don't always like him. I, I we have had some bad moments, and his wife and I continue to uh, from time to time. Um, I'm, I'm still dealing with the fact that I think that it was his stepping away from Malcolm X that allowed uh, Malcolm to be assassinated at that time. I think that there were times that Ali did not step up when he should have. I think that you know his hypocrisy in a lot of things was, was nerve-rattling. But um, And can I ask about that? Because you describe in the book... Uh, openly telling Ali, you're, there are moments where you're quite sharp with him, quite pointed. And yeah. in reading that, I just I, I can't think of a sports journalist today having that kind of relationship with a star of Ali's magnitude and having the temerity to to tell that star off. Well, I, I think that uh, access is so much more difficult today than it was in those days that uh, it would be very hard for a sports writer or, or you know, a White House correspondent or, um, you know, some, some food writer who, you know, who sucks around celebrity chefs to, you know, to, to uh, feel that free. But, you know, Bruce, I'm a fat boy and an English major, uh, and I have a big chip on my shoulder. <laughs> and, I, you know, I never came, I always felt that I was I was temporary that I was I had one foot out the door and I never really cared I never really saw it as my life's work I, I didn't feel trapped there um, the mortgage wasn't dependent on it I I, I, I had I felt maybe unjustifiably I felt a certain freedom and and um, I, I think I was very fortunate to, to have that freedom on the, on the other hand I'm sure like all sports writers like all uh, genre journalists. Uh, there were people that I uh, over celebrated and and fell over and did not see in a clear, fair, objective way. But um, I, he was my story, and I, I really felt that I, I had to cover it accurately. And uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't that long ago when after nine eleven. Uh, he, he didn't, you know, he was Muslim. He didn't come out against Al Qaeda because, uh, you know, he had business interests in that part of the and friends in that part of the world. And uh, yeah, I, I think I was sharp about that. Um, you know, there were things that I, I was not sharp about. I mean, uh, he was. Um, oh, another thing was that in in sixty four, sixty five, sixty six, the height of the civil rights movement. Here was a guy as, as the front of a crank cult uh, calling for segregation. 
Uh, here was a guy who um, was posturing about how important the family was and that he was a model for uh, black guys who snuck around on their wives or walked out on their children. Uh, and and he, here, here he was messing around in front of me. I, I think that, I mean, I knew that he was uh, sometimes had, had two hotel rooms. Uh, his his a wife, a wife stashed in one and a girlfriend in the other. And, um, you know, I, I kind of sensed and could tell that there were uh, women floating around uh, his camp or when we were traveling together. Uh, but, you know, I, I could be, he was private about it and he was, he was discreet. Um, but then he eventually, you know, did it right in front of me. He pulled a woman uh, into a recreational vehicle that he was in alone, closed the door, and, and just <laughs> just like the handsome cab in uh, in um, Madame Bovary, the, uh, the, the the recreational vehicle began to you know jiggle on its springs. Um, and I wrote about that, and you know his trainer and his 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 PR guys are like that. You know said, hey, you know. Stop taking notes. You must never write about this. You know, if you ever mention this, you'll never have access. He'll never talk to you again. This didn't happen. I, I thought about it for a while. Uh, I was writing a magazine piece for the Sunday Times, and um, I thought, well, it, this was in the late 70s. It'd be a shame to lose access now. It'd been such a good run, but you know, how could I not write something that happened in front of me that other people saw? I mean, there was there was a crowd around the recreational vehicle. And um, so I wrote about it in, in just that kind of, of way. And the, uh, the Times entitled that magazine piece, King of All Kings, which is what he had been calling himself at that moment. And uh, about six months later, uh, I was on a story. Uh, he was there, and he saw me, and he came right up to me. And he said, King of all kings, all right. And, you know, led me off to yet another interview. So for your, your long connection with, with Ali and how important he was to your career and, and the importance of Ali in, in sports history, in your book you say that uh, the most important athlete uh, of the century, I think is what you say, is, is not Ali, but Billie Jean King. So why do you see her as so important? Well, she she really, you know, I think that uh, so much of what Ali stood for uh, are things that we assign to him out of our own needs. Uh, I think that Billie Jean really uh, stood up in, in, in much more direct and powerful ways. First of all, Billie Jean King was representing more than half of the people in the world, certainly you know, more than half of the athletes, women. Um, and um, her her importance, I think, cannot be overestimated in terms of, of Title IX. She came along as kind of the physical uh, embodiment of the second wave of feminism, the women's movement of the 70s. Um, she was also incredibly important in breaking down, you know, the, the fraudulent cult of amateurism by which uh, athletes were paid under the table by coaches and officials in order to keep control of them. Um, she also was a visionary in that she created something which never really got real traction. It was called World Team Tennis, and basically it was a circuit in which important professional tennis players uh, on little teams would travel, play each other, and then interact within local communities and leave behind and do workshops with everyday people, old people in particular, and children, and leave behind um, uh, recreational leagues, not unlike bowling leagues, in which people would play tennis. 
Uh, I remember covering it at the time, around 80, and uh, 1980, and, and thinking that, um, you know, what other athlete of her stature has ever really reached out so meaningfully in, in uh, their own sport? Uh, what happened then, and, and she was on the brink of getting enormous amount of uh, corporate funding for that. What happened was that she was blackmailed by a, uh, a former lesbian lover. There was a palimony suit, and she very uh, quickly lost all her corporate funding. World Team Tennis still exists, but it's, it's the shadow of that. So it was a combination of all those things that uh, really led me to believe that in, in terms of uh, real importance, uh, Billie Jean King really is the most powerful uh, sports figure of our time, certainly of the second half of the 20th century, probably of the first half of the 20th century, would have to be Jackie Robinson. So you write with great admiration for her in the, in the book, but at the same time, in, in your chapters that deal with the 60s, and the seventies, you you also write of how you were you were looking for people to admire in sports, and you have chapters in which you talk about uh, you know I guess the term would be unsung heroes involved in sports. And, and let me ask you you know rather than talking about particular people, are those you know those unsung people in sports who deserve our admiration? Are they hard to find, or is it a matter of that we we just don't look for them? Well, I think that. You know, they tend to be in our neighborhood, in our community, and they tend to be helping one kid at a time. Uh, so they, they absolutely do exist. But I, I think that, um, I, I, hate to, I hate to use this, the word media, and, you know, we're always kind of bashing the media, but, um, hey, why not? All right, we're media, we can bash media. <laughs> We really do a criminal job in uh, our coverage of of heroes, of making heroes, then dashing heroes, uh, building them up, knocking them down, using them to uh, sell airtime, sell papers when we sold papers, uh, and uh, promote our own careers. The, the real heroes are people who are, you know, in, in community centers, in small enclaves, who are running little programs, who are helping, you know, kids become uh, men and women with uh, purpose in their lives. Uh, the, the great sports heroes, and it's always a mistake because really, you know, I, I've always looked upon Michael, for example, Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods as the most expensive clothing models of our time. Are they worthy of our admiration? Well, sure, for certain things, and both of them, their work ethic, their dedication, uh, their you know, kind of eyes on the prize attitudes. Uh, these guys you know, really worked hard for what they want. Uh, are they exemplary human beings that we should uh, follow by no means. Um, you know, Mickey Mantle on up and down, Babe Ruth, uh, Jack John, you know, name any, any of these people. They had very often symbolic importance. They certainly could be inspirational to individuals. Certainly uh, John L. Sullivan, uh, you know, that the I can lick any son of a bitch in the world. The, the heavyweight champion of the of the uh, 1880s and 1890s, um, braggart, drunk, wife beater that he was, uh, was still an inspiration uh, to a, an immigrant group, Irishmen who were being terribly discriminated against in America of that time. You know, Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, uh, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, uh, they all uh, gave, gave a sense of bravery. They, they stiffened the spine of people. They let them push on. Uh, but it, it was not even necessarily 
the person himself. Although in some, I, I think that I, I think that Jackie Robinson really was a wonderfully exemplary human being, uh, and there, there were certainly others. But I, I think that it was what we attached to them, the uh, the symbolism, what we could emotionally, you know, extract from their stories uh, that gave us hope and strength. Nowadays, you know, there are people like that certainly out there. I would assume, you know, and and you know, you can find them. I mean, there's. Um, you know, a New York Mets pitcher you know, who who climbed a mountain against uh, the wishes of the ball club, you know, to raise funds for a, for a charity. He seems like a R.J. Dickey. He seems like a pretty good guy. Uh, but I, I think that you know we have to really be careful with our sports heroes because basically they're being used to sell product of of one form or another. As as we have to be, uh, you know careful with uh, any any kinds of celebrities i'll ask you for for all the the writing you've done for the new york times the the books you've written uh, uh you had told me when we had talked earlier that that the books that are most meaningful to you are the ones that you've written for young readers why is that well i i guess it's uh, some sort of uh egomaniacal messianic you know um uh, craziness the idea that um these readers are the ones that you can really reach out and uh, touch in, in a meaningful way. I, I think I'm probably writing for that fat kid I was, um, you know, reaching back into time and saying, "Hey, Bobby, it's going to be okay." You know that everybody else is scared too. Uh, but I think that so much of what I write for Adults, uh, I'm either uh, a jerk or a genius because they agree or disagree with me. Um, I got 100 out of 100 nasty comments on a piece I recently wrote for Salon comparing Tiger Woods to O.J. Simpson and Mike Tyson as as guys who cracked up, um, and I think that. People were horrified that you know Tiger Woods could be put in in that category. I think that if I had written something similar to a young adult, a teenage audience, they might have argued with me, uh, but they would have been open to the discussion. They would have tried to follow what I was saying. And I, I know this from uh, going into schools after the kids have read a book of mine. And the discussion, to me, is, is, is absolutely thrilling. Um, I, I wrote a book uh, called Raider's Night. There was a lot of sex and drugs in it, so it was banned in a lot of places. But it was about uh, the dark side of, of high school football. And in a couple of really kind of uh, interesting and progressive Midwestern high schools, it was the football coach who invited me to come talk to the team after they read it. And at the end of the book, the, the hero does what I would have thought was the right, right thing. And uh, half the team thought that I was nuts, that you really got to take care of yourself and you don't do the right thing, that football is dog-eat-dog, as is life, and you just protect yourself. And the other half said, no, no, you have to stand up and do the right thing. And there was this kind of wonderful discussion about right thing to do and, uh, you know, the responsibility of a team leader and what it meant to be part of a group. And I, you know, I, I was kind of you know, wild with joy and also understanding that this never would have happened, you know, with an adult group, you know, chewing over while, why I was so smart or so stupid about something that I had written for them. Um, I've written uh, 12 young adult novels, and um, I decided that I want to go even you know, younger. And uh, my first middle grade novel uh, comes out in October. It's called The Twinning Project. And, um, and it was hard to write because I was unable to fall back on my old standbys of uh, sex and drugs. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> So, you know, the, the, the moral, the moral uh, equations, you know, had to be uh, 
cleaner and clearer. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited writing about that. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I really, I'm an English major, so I think of these as literary enterprises, of course. Uh, but I also can't shake the idea that there is a kind of uh, moral responsibility to be a, a, a teacher here as well, and, and never to lie to kids and to, to make the points clear. I think that you can assume with an adult audience, which is a mistake too, I must say, that you can assume with an adult audience that they have enough experience and background to see what's um, what's magic realism and uh, you know what's you know factual reporting. Um, I, I don't think that kids always do, and so um, this this I think the restrictions are stronger. It's it, it's a genre. Um, literary uh, uh, event but uh, but yeah yeah Bruce it, it, it it's really what I like to do do most but on the other hand I've also found I always need that balance between fiction and journalism because as you know as a fat kid I still have trouble going out and imposing myself on people unless I can pretend to be a, a journalist you know, taking notes for a responsible publication. Mm -hmm. And that's how I can ask embarrassing questions. <laughs> well, we're almost out of time, Bob. And I want to ask, uh, uh, I think I speak on behalf of most of my listeners in saying that, that we won't ever be in a position to, to write our memoirs or, or at least have them published. And I want to ask, how did you do that? How did you go about that process? Because there is an indication in the, in the book that you actually did research into your, into your own life. Yeah, I think it started out, you know, the publisher was interested, and I, I think I was coming to a certain age, and uh, I, my idea was that I would, um, I would write at a certain remove in, in a book that would be kind of, you know, you know Lipside's greatest hits, and, but that I would go back and talk to the subjects whenever I could for their recollections. And uh, as it turned out, that a lot of people did not remember uh, some of the things that I remembered or didn't necessarily remember it the same way that I did, uh, which was um, humbling <laughs> and interesting. Uh, so I, I wrote, wrote the book, and my, my two strongest readers, my son Sam, uh, Sam Lipside is a best-selling novelist and uh, fiction teacher, uh, and my wife Lois, who is a, a writer as well, and, and they threw it back at me. Actually, they threw the first couple of drafts back at me because they felt it really was written at a remove at you know my greatest hits. That you know what was the point of writing the memoir unless I really got down into it and wrote about how I felt and uh, how meaningful these events were. And, and to write in a in a much more personal way than I had ever written. So the first draft or two was fun. It was easy. I was kind of uh, rewriting my life. Um, the uh, the next drafts were really hard and sometimes painful because I was recreating. And, and some of the things that I had to write about how I felt I failed my daughter uh, as a sports writer uh, when she came up against. Uh, sexism as a, as a high school soccer player uh, you know, it was hard to do and you know, I interviewed her at length and she kept kicking back my paragraphs too um, so uh, it, it, it turned out at the end to be um, in, in some ways less immediately pleasurable but um, of a very rich and textured experience I mean uh, I, I ended up really loving having done the memoir and um, caring, caring less—I hate to say—caring less what other people felt, uh, because I, I felt that I had somehow come in contact with myself. All right. Well, so you mentioned that you have a, a young adult book coming out in the fall. What's what's the book you're working on now? Then, what's your current project? Well, uh, the the current project is the publisher Clarion uh, liked like the uh, middle grade book The Twinning Project so much that we went right to sequel <laughs> so I'm, I'm writing a, a sequel to it which is um, which is, is always scary because I've, I've never before 
uh, written a sequel right after having written a book. You know, if I ever wrote uh, another book about some of the same characters, it was years later because I pined for them and wondered what had happened. So I really feel kind of excited and under the gun. And you're still writing about sports for Salon and Slate? Yeah, and for the New York, I, I was, I've been rediscovered at the New York Times, so uh, I'm writing a lot of sports all over again, and uh, it's fun. It's, uh, you know, to a certain extent, it is at a remove, and I'm really writing it as a, as a codger. I'm not uh, writing it as a uh, young reporter in the trenches. Um, so I, I, I leave it to those guys, and there's some great ones, um, to do the legwork for me so that I can sit back in uh, pundocratic splendor and comment. You've been listening to an interview with Robert Lipsight about his book, An Accidental Sports Writer, a memoir, published in 2011 by Echo Books. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from biography to law. If you like what you heard here, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports and follow us on Twitter. You can give us feedback, suggest good books, and find daily links to quality, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.